our study in Zechariah. We'll be in Zechariah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Now you may think that I focus too much on this passage this week. Ask for the rains from the Lord, right? <laughs> but certainly it's not my fault. That's all I'm saying. When I was in high school, I took Latin. I took two years of Latin, and you would think two years of Latin, I should know Latin, right? No, I don't, but I remember very little of Latin. In fact, I left Latin with exactly three phrases. At the beginning of every chapter, there would be one little phrase at the top, and I always remember being fascinated by those, and some of those stuck with me. One was tempus fugit, that is, time is passing. Uh, The other was uh, Caesar, as he's about to cross the Rubicon, says the words, the die is cast. I cannot turn back now from Rome. The third and the final one was Ora et Labora. I always thought it had this nice ring to it, Ora et Labora. And Ora et Labora means this, prayer and labor. It's a monastic term. Uh, came out of uh, monasticism, and that was their life, right? Prayer and labor. Those are the two things that consumed uh, many uh, monks' lives. Prayer and labor. It's two constants. And this is certainly true if you consider an agrarian society. This is harder for us in a way uh, to wrap our minds around because a lot of us have jobs that deal with uh, the ethereal data, right? Uh, Computers and all the like and stuff like that. Uh, So we've lost a little of uh, the agrarian uh, mindset. But if you've ever grown a garden, and I know some of you are involved in uh, the garden clubs and stuff like that, uh, there's a lot that goes into growing vegetables and flowers and stuff like that that is planting and then praying. Certainly even more so back then because they didn't have running water or things like that. They didn't have these... Uh, great methods of irrigation that we have even today. In a sense, they're being called here to prayer and labor. Uh, Last week, as we looked at at Zechariah, he was telling them 
uh, this prophecy, prophecy, excuse me. And he talks about this great day of deliverance. And it really is great. We're talking about uh, Jesus coming on triumphal entry. And he's going to come on a donkey. And it's going to be Israel's king, Israel's Messiah. And it was full of symbolic significance. And you can imagine Zacharias hears could have responded in many different ways. Maybe some were like, oh yeah, okay, we're, we're waiting, yay. And there was a anticipation and excitement. But you can also imagine there's some response of, okay, that's well and good, but what about my needs today? What about my needs right now? I understand there's this Messiah coming into the future, but what about now? What about food? What about shelter? How am I going to get through the next day, through the next month? Through the next year. Zechariah begins to ask or answer this question, I should say. And we're going to see three things here. We're going to see the power of God, the impotence of idols, and the cornerstone of faith. Now we know if we're to look that up to this point, as remember, Israel has now returned from Babylon. They had been in exile. Now they're back in the land. And it's been a hard life for them. In fact, Haggai 1.6, who talks about, uh, Haggai is talking about the return community, says this. You have sown much, but you have reaped little. You have sown much, but you have reaped little. Basically what it's saying is, you're working really hard, but you have nothing to show for it. You're working really hard, but you have nothing to show for it. They'd work the land, but it was not producing for them. And there was a lot that went into this for them. If they were going to have a good harvest, this is what they needed to do. They needed to go out, they needed to prepare the land. That a lot of hard work, clearing any debris, clearing any brush and weeds. They were to sow and plant their seeds. But once that was done, it was kind of out of their hands. Because they needed several other things. They needed the early rains. These were the rains that came in the autumn months. These, this was the rains that allowed the seeds to grow, to sprout. But then they also needed the late rains, came in the spring months. And this is when the, the crop, whether it be corn or wheat or whatever it was going to be, this would make them grow big and fat. It would nourish the crop as it was growing. And if you remember at the end of verse 9, verse nine, chapter 9, I should say, verse 17, Zechariah began to tease them. He says, grain shall make your young men flourish. And new wine, the young women. He's talking about a time that's coming where there's going to be a plentiful harvest. And you can imagine little ears perking up, right? Hey, hey, I like this one. Tell me about this. Tell me about the new grains, the tons of grains and the new wine. Tell me about these things. When are this coming? When is this going to happen? And as a good preacher, Zechariah didn't give them what they wanted. He didn't directly answer their question saying, okay, if you do this in this month, then you're going to have this great new harvest, right? A good preacher always leaves you wanting more, right? Okay, maybe it's just me. Instead of telling them about that, 
What does he do? You need to have faith. You need to repent. And you need to pray. Huh. No, Zechariah, I don't think you understand what we're asking you. (laughs) We need food for our bellies. We're working really hard. And we want to see the results of that. And yeah, yeah, I gotcha. You need to have faith. You need to repent. And you need to pray. You can imagine for them, this would not have been what they exactly wanted to hear. But the reality is this. They needed something they had zero control over. Zero control. God was in control. And so what did they need to do? You need to turn to the one who has control. I think in a way here, the people have kind of said this. This is the, in my opinion, the subtext. Zechariah, why should we be worried about prophecy? We're worried about food for our belly. You're telling us about all these great grand things, and that's great and grand for you, but we're struggling. We're struggling to get to the next month. We're struggling to to feed our children. Why should we care about prophecy? And in essence, he says, look, guys, Let me point you to the God who gave you these prophecies. Who has the power to control the rain. Who is the one who is able to provide for all your needs. We could ask the same question today. Daniel, why are we in Zechariah? This Old Testament prophet who, who was talking to their current needs and okay yes he maybe pointed to Jesus and that's all well and good but the gospels tell us about Jesus we Matthew told us about Jesus right why do we need Zechariah and the same answer is true for us today let me show you a god who prophesied that these things would come to pass and they actually came to pass Let me show you this God who has power, who is the Lord of the reign, who is a good and gracious God, who when you turn to him in prayer, will respond to you, who will answer your prayer. Work alone was not enough. There's nothing they could do to control the weather. Now today we have conquered that in some ways, right? We can go to the water spigot and we can turn it on and we can water our crops. You, if you ever go through a, an agrarian part of our country, you, you see, I, I remember as a kid, these always fascinated me. These long metal tubes on wheels, right? And they spray water and they move really slowly. So in times of drought, what, what happens? We're going to water. We're going to make sure that we have the food that we need. And so we've conquered this in some ways, right? But we still are limited with what we can do 
regarding the weather. This last uh, few days, all over my Facebook feed uh, has been comments about the, t- the 10 years anniversary of Katrina, right? My parents were down there. They're still down there. They had a big party, I think, Saturday, remembering. We are still limited in our control of the weather. Hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, straight line winds, whatever it is, the weather is mighty and powerful. We cannot tame it. We cannot control it. But there is one who can control it, who has power even over weather. And Zechariah says, hey, you need to rely on that one, on that king who has that power. In essence, he says, hey, guys, you need to stop relying on yourself. You're concerned with your work and how much work you've done. You're worried about the labora part of Ora et labora. You've worked hard, so I should get mine, right? That's that notion. If I work hard, I'm going to get what I'm going to get. I'm going to get what's coming to me. And we resist being God-reliant. Relying wholly on God for all of our needs. What do you think is the result of being self-reliant as opposed to being God-reliant? If you're fully reliant on yourself, what need do you have for prayer? There is no need. And yet we desperately need God. We need his spirit. We need to live in a godly manner. We need his wisdom to overcome our folly. We are in desperate need of him. The goal then should be to rely on ourselves less. To turn to God and say, give us this day our daily bread. What is that asking for? Don't give me wealth. Don't give me famine. Just give me what I need to get through the day. Are we content in that? Are we content with our daily bread? For Israel, they had not done this. They had turned to idols. This is our second point, the impotence of idols. They were using these idols as a means to access divine help. Instead of looking to God, they looked to these idols. And these came in kind of two forms. Uh, One was the teraphim. You may have heard that term before. This was uh, Rachel. When she's leaving Laban's house, she takes the teraphim. These were small household idols that were meant to bring uh, assurance for the people. And today it would look something like this. Any kind of occult religion that says, here's a talisman, here's a good luck charm, and this is going to bring you what you need. 
Now, I wonder, I, I, I don't think that anyone in this room necessarily follows any kind of these cult religions and is actually wearing a literal talisman or, I don't know, chicken foot grabbing an orb or something like that. I don't know what it would be uh, as a talisman that thinks that if I wear this, it's going to bring me good luck. I, I wonder how many of us, though, don't have crosses and maybe we have habits of like rubbing them or something. And we think if we rub it, is it like a genie lamp? No. I'm not saying that every time you do that, that's what you're doing. I think sometimes we do it as a sort of comfort. But how many times do we, we I think of it it's funny this way. You think about the sports analogy. Um, and, of course, this is somewhat silly. But I think this overcomes, plays over into our life. You, you hear stories of the sports people who like, oh, these are lucky socks. I'm not going to change my socks, right? And what's the notion there? What's causing the winning? It's my socks. I got my lucky socks on. We're going to win the game, right? I think we have a tendency on a very subversive level to, to do the same thing, don't we? I think it's, it's not as boldly as I have this idol talisman and I'm going I'm to carve this little wooden idol and I'm going to put it in my house and a place of prominence, but we still kind of do I think we even do it with God a little bit. And, we, and this is how I think we do it. All right. We get our, our God lamp out. God, if you just do this for me, I'll do this for you. And we rub the lamp. If you just do this for me, I'll do this for you. And so God has become a genie in a bottle, right? If I get my three wishes, don't use them too quickly. Another kind is the diviners, people who would come, they would claim to receive visions and have these kind of dreams that would tell people what to, would happen. Balaam is an example of this. But here's the interesting thing about the, the Balaam diviners. If you pay them enough, they're going to give you the dream that you want to hear. What does that sound like? If you just send me 9.95, you will be healed through the television. Right? Yeah, that's right. I think there's someone out there and they have bunions. And if you just give me $100, your bunions will be healed. That's really going on. That is a multi-million, billion-dollar industry, right? These televangelists who are charlatans, I think. I'm going to say that and maybe... You disagree with me, but I think they're charlatans. And so we see idols around us today. We see us trying to manipulate divine forces. In essence, it comes down to this. Those who fail to depend on God's grace and surrender to him in prayer and seek to take that divine power and manipulate it. Are you, have you ever tried to manipulate God? That is kind of a hurt, it hurts me a little bit because I'm like, okay, maybe I've done that too. <laughs> okay, maybe not maybe. Maybe I've, yeah, okay, I've done that too. <laughs> it's the, the foxhole or the trench mentality, right? Just get me, if you do this, I'll do this. I, I think we see it in other places too, though. It's any, I'm going to put air quotes on this, any religion that seeks to manipulate, manipulate, manipulate 
God. I think liberal scholars can be very guilty of this. They contort plain teaching of scripture. They use it to serve the God of humanism, the the God of culture. It's not true religion. One that seeks God in our weakness and our needs says, give me exactly what you would have for me. Provide for me in the way you will provide for me. And so Zechariah points them and points us to their Savior. Seek your Savior. Seek your Messiah. The one who will work his saving work in your life. Acknowledge your sin. Ask him to remove it. The reality is this. Idols... No matter what shape or form they take, whether they be carved, uh, whether they be little Buddhas, whatever they are, whether they be carved into the recesses of your heart, what idols do is give you false hope. And false hope is dangerous. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's a false comfort. We think we're fine when in fact we're in danger of divine judgment. I think the church can be very guilty of giving false hope. Now, I'm, I'm going to use this as an example. I want you to hear before I even tell you what it is. I'm not saying this is true in all cases. I'm saying that. It's not true in all cases. I think that that is the danger of the altar call, though. What is the goal in the altar call? If I can get you to just say a sinner's prayer. But then I have no follow-up. And I think because of this, we've seen now in our country, we have people who have done that, and then they've gone back to their lives... And their lives haven't changed, but you talk to them and they say, I'm okay. I was at this thing at, at this time and I said a sinner's prayer. I, I, me and God, we're good. That's, that's as far as I'm going though. And it's dangerous to give the world false hope. We cannot be promoters of idols, of false comfort. We have to promote what Zechariah promotes. And he promotes the cornerstone. The cornerstone of our faith. And interestingly, he does this by calling us sheep. He says, okay, y'all are sheep. And first let me say... That you've been led poorly. You have had some bad shepherds and I'm ticked at them. My anger is hot is what he says. They have led you in a bad way and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to punish them. Okay, let's stop there for a second. Are you a leader in the church of Jesus Christ? Are you leading well? Because if you're not leading well, guess what? God's going to punish you. Scary part for me. Scary part for any of you elders and deacons out there. If we don't lead well, there's a punishment that is coming. And it reminds us of the Pharisees, doesn't it? Matthew 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
you bad shepherds, you. That's what's coming for them. Jesus rebukes false and bad leadership. I fear for these men who are stealing millions and millions of dollars. I fear for their souls. There's a punishment coming for these. But the inverse of this, I think this is very uh, univer- almost universally true that oftentimes the first step in bringing blessing to God's people is the removal of bad leaders and putting in place of them good leaders. We think of Israel. Israel asked for a king. Who did they get? Saul. Very quickly in the Saul's reign, what did God decide to do? Okay, I'm going to get him out of there because he's a bad leader. And I'm going to put in David, who's going to be my good leader. Okay, just, let's just take a side note. David, idolater, uh, adulterer, I should say, uh, murderer, not David, good leader, right? But that's his good leader, the one who's after God's own heart. He's going to remove poor leaders. He's going to put in good leaders. This is, I think we looked at church history. This is true. Whenever the true church has been challenged, really challenged, there have been men who would stand up and defend it. To deflend, to, to deflend. That is a great new word that I just created, deflend. It's defend, and I don't know what the other part of that word was, so I don't know. To defend God's flock. Uh, there is a pastor uh, who was a former shepherd by the name of Philip Keller, and he said this. It is not accidental that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human being is similar in many ways. Our mass mind or mob instincts, our fear and timidity, our stubbornness and stupidity, our perverse habits are all parallel, are all parallels of profound importance. He has great things to say about us as a people, right? We are have a mob instinct, we're fear, we're fearful and timid, we're stubborn and stupid. His words, not mine. Just so don't come back and say, hey, I called you stubborn and stupid. Now, I'm probably the stubbornest and stupidest, so. But even so, God lovingly invests in us. He says from Judah. Who is Judah? Okay, we're, we've been going through this in Sunday school. If you've been here at all, you know who Judah is, right? Judah is the southern kingdom. What remains in the southern kingdom? The southern king. <laughs> who is the southern king from? David. Who will ultimately come from David? Jesus, right? We, we connect the dots there. From Judah, I'm going to bring you a savior. The good and faithful shepherd, the true David, the true southern king, the Messiah. And he will be many things to you. He says he will be a cornerstone, a tent peg. Now these, these two things are referring to the same thing. A cornerstone is the main stone that you put down. It's what makes the house secure. If your cornerstone is good and right, then the building will stand. The same is true. You ever go into a tent and pull out the tent peg? What happens? You no longer have a tent on top of you. Now, I'm not talking about those tents today with all their bendy wires and you pull them out and they all, you know, we don't. 
before it was, okay, we pull it up, we put the peg in, pull the peg out, and right? You think Dumbo. What happened when the, the big top came down, right? It came on the other day. Been watching a lot of cartoon shows with Josiah. So if I, I vary into cartoon analogies, that, that, that you know why. He is our tent peg. He is our cornerstone. He is what keeps the building sure of Ephesians 2, 20 and 21. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. When we see cornerstone here in Zechariah, it's like when we saw, hey, there's going to come one who's going to ride on a donkey. It's that same kind of in-your-face analogy. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And so we are to come to him. We are to allow his person and work and character to be our character. We see his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and it's to be a model for us. We are to come in around that cornerstone and we are to slowly build up the bricks all around him with him being the focal point in him we have one who we can rest our burdens upon, our sins, our needs. He is our secure place of hope. He's our secure place for the glory that is to come. He is a conqueror. It says here, he will make from his people a battle bow, a bow. Every ruler all of them together shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. He comes as a conqueror to smite our foes with violence against sinfulness. In him we do not have to fear that we will be destroyed, for he will be using us. He is the good shepherd, the right and faithful shepherd. One of these days in the years to come, I hope to go through the Gospel of John. And John is different than all the other Gospels, but he has this great section that talks about this. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. Now, what defines the good shepherd? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is who Jesus is. We are his and he has laid down his life for us. He has paid for it with his blood. In John, in John 10, it also says this, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for, the, for they know his voice. We are marked as his. Do you know how they mark sheep? They cut their ears. It's not like a cow. You really can't brand a sheep. Do you know why? Wool. It'd be stinky. Burning wool, right? So they would, you'll cut a, a sheep's ear in different ways to mark it as yours. So you might cut a notch out or whatever it is. And guess what? That hurts. You, I mean, it's obvious, right? You take a sheep's ear and you cut it and you slit it or whatever you're going to do. That hurts. But it's necessary. Oftentimes when he calls us out as his, it hurts. 
Why does it hurt? Because he's saying, you can no longer live for yourself. You have to live for me. That means you have to give up dependence on yourself, dependence upon this world, dependence on all these things, and come after me. You know my voice. Follow after me. He delights in caring for his sheep. He's interceding for them. That's why we read Psalm 23 this morning together, right? He leads you by still waters. He's restoring your soul. Yea, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you fear no evil. For his rod, his staff, they comfort you. Isn't that a wonderful and beautiful thing? He says in John again, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, the sheep know me. And I laid down my life for those sheep. He says it again and again. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his calling? If you say yes to this, there is only one proper response. When you see a shepherd out and they're messing with their sheep, doing, you know, tending their sheep, sometimes they use these things, the clicks or whatever kind of noises. And the, and the sheep are trained. When they hear the voice of their shepherd, what do they do? Oh, it's time to go. I'm going with him because if I don't go with him, that wolf over there or that coyote over there, whatever it is over there, he's going to get me. And I don't want to go get, get, get gotten. Get gotten. I don't want to get gotten. So I'm going to go with my shepherd. That is the mind of a sheep. I go with him because with him there is safety. I, if I don't go with him, I will not be safe. Do you hear him calling? Then follow him. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on this world because you have a God who is powerful. You have a God who causes the rain to fall who has designed this world so that whatever happens with static electricity in the air, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, happens, and this boom happens, and lightning arcs across the sky. You have a God who has designed leaves to suck in light and carbon dioxide, and this whole process called photosynthesis your God designed that to happen. He has designed us down to the atom level. So that protons and neutrons and electrons, and again, I'm not a scientist, I know fancy words, they all operate like they are. And we, and we see people like, oh, look at DNA and the, the Human Genome Project and all these, way, this is way cool things, and we can take us down to a computer code-type level. And we can see our DNA and exactly how we're coded. Guess who designed that? It's God. Make no mistake, he is powerful. There is none greater, no earthly kings, no earthly rulers, no governments, no political parties, nothing. And if we put our trust in any of those idols, we will certainly fail. They are empty. They cannot fill us. And in fact, they only fill us with false security. 
ourselves. So we put our trust in Jesus alone, the one who has reconciled us to God, our good shepherd who has laid down his life for us. Do you hear his voice? I love that hymn softly and tenderly and it's true in a sense but sometimes it's not softly and not tenderly sometimes it's hard sometimes it's not pleasant but Jesus is calling calling you sinner come home do you hear his voice then follow him follow Jesus the author and finisher, the perfecter of our faith, the only one in which true hope is found. Follow him. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are indeed sheep, oftentimes, and we are in need of you. Lord, would we follow you? In all things we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.